Major General Patrick Claiborne was a native of the Green Jewel, that is Ireland, and commanded a division in the Confederate Army of Tennessee. For his military prowess, he was tabbed the Stonewall of the West. Yet the warrior was often reserved and sentimental. That surfaced the day before the Battle of Franklin, when he and his adjutant paused in a little village named Ashwood. There they found St. John's Episcopal Church. Small and quaint, it was nestled in a grove, framed by ivy, and though late in fall, with flowers. Adding to the pastoral scene, there was fresh shrubbery, so very green when contrasted with the bleak, gray November sky. Claiborne reined in his horse at the church, and admiring the scene, mused just loud enough for his adjutant to hear that the beauty here was almost worth dying to be buried in such a beautiful spot. With his time on earth now measured literally in hours, his wish would soon come true. And symbolically, and only five hours on the 30th of November, 1864, so too with the effective lifespan of an entire army. This is the story of the mortal wounding of the Confederate Army of Tennessee. This is the story of the Battle of Franklin. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. By November 1864, a year had almost passed since the incredible dash up Missionary Ridge, the rout of Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army, and Union victory at Chattanooga. On the 8th of that month, the 16th president had been re-elected. Meanwhile, down at Petersburg, Virginia, Lieutenant General U.S. Grant was locked in siege with Lee's embattled veterans. And to the southwest, Major General William T. Sherman would soon torch Atlanta, cut his supply lines, and begin what would prove to be a devastating march across Georgia. And yet, despite federal advantage, just west, in northern Alabama, there was the troublesome and aggressive John Bell Hood, a man Robert E. Lee once described as all lion, but none of the fox. Though Hood's Confederate Army of Tennessee was battle-scarred, it remained a force to be reckoned with, and to deal with that southern force while he made his march to the sea, Sherman sent one of his lieutenants, the Rock of Chickamauga, Major General George Henry Thomas, back to Nashville, where he began to bring together Union forces in and around Tennessee and consolidate his command. Soon, his force would number over 50,000. Regardless, Confederate forces were active. 
On Wednesday, the 16th of November, while Atlanta smoldered, Lieutenant General Nathan Bedford Forrest and his 6,000 troopers linked up with Hood's Army of Tennessee at Tuscumbria, Alabama. With his numbers now up to some 38,000, Hood originally wanted to cross the Tennessee River in northern Alabama and re-enter the volunteer state in the first days of November. But there had been delays, three weeks of them. First, there was the wait for Forrest, who was finishing up a successful raid at Johnsonville in central Tennessee. Then supplies from Corinth, Mississippi were delayed, and now, bad weather. The delays had the commander of the Confederacy's Western Department, P.G.T. Beauregard, beside himself. For Hood's ambitious campaign, Beauregard stressed speed. He wanted Hood into Tennessee before George Thomas could truly amass and organize. Though pelted by sleet, on Monday, November the 21st, Hood and the Confederate Army of Tennessee marched out of Florence, Alabama, and headed for the volunteer state. The 33-year-old native Kentuckian imagined a campaign modeled after Stonewall Jackson's wildly successful 1862 Shenandoah campaign. Hood believed lightning light strikes could retake Nashville and capture tons of Union supplies stored there. He also believed an active and belligerent Confederate presence back in Tennessee would rally countless numbers to the Southern cause. With such success, Hood reasoned he would force Sherman to turn back and the course of the war in the West might be reversed. Yet, cruelly, his own physical condition symbolized that of the Confederacy. Literally, strapped to his horse, he rode out of Florence that day with a useless left arm from a wound on the second day of Gettysburg and minus a right leg which had been amputated after his severe wounding at Chickamauga. Yes, though Hood was severely debilitated, he was still full of fight. On a north-northeastward course, his army marched, despite the fact that they suffered from short rations and far too many were barefoot. Still, many were elated to return to their native state. Headed home, one Tennessean wrote, The ground is frozen hard and sharp, cold wind is blowing, but as my face is toward Tennessee, I heed none of these things. And there was another reason for the common soldier in his army to feel elation. Hood implied he would not give battle unless the enemy's numbers were equal or less, that he would only give battle if he had chosen the ground, and that in battle he would not order them to attack strong, entrenched forces as he had repeatedly ordered around Atlanta. Those attacks around that city created some 20,000 Confederate casualties. The key word in Hood's promises? Implied. Sadly, Hood would keep few of them. Protected on his right by Bedford Forest mounted element, his army advanced in three main columns. On the left, a corps under the 44-year-old native Tennessean, Major General Benjamin Franklin Cheatham, who was an experienced Southern officer who had fought at Shiloh, Stones River, and Chickamauga. 
His physical strength and his cursing were legendary. So, too, were the allegations for his fondness for the bottle. On the right, a corps led by Lieutenant General Alexander Peter Stewart, another native Tennessean, who was 43 years of age and a veteran of virtually every battle in the Western Theater. Between, in the center, a third Confederate corps under Stephen Dill Lee, who at 31 was the youngest lieutenant general in Confederate service. A native of Charleston, South Carolina, he had received his West Point appointment from North Carolina. The three corps, 12 divisions in all, were to march about 70 miles and rendezvous at a village called Mount Pleasant, Tennessee. There, some 38,000 strong with 108 guns would unite, then collectively move another dozen miles northeastward to a town of vital strategic importance, Columbia. It was there, the Franklin and Columbia Turnpike, the main road running north to Nashville, crossed the Duck River. However, on the turnpike 30 miles south of Columbia at Pulaski, there were roughly 30,000 men that Sherman had sent back to defend Tennessee. Two federal corps under Major General John McAllister Schofield, who had graduated with Hood in the West Point class of 1853. In that class, Schofield finished seventh of 54 graduates, Hood 44th. Their personalities were opposite ends of the spectrum. Schofield was articulate, calm, precise, and dispassionate. Conversely, Hood was dashing, aggressive, emotional, a romantic. Hood's plan? Seize Columbia, trap Schofield south of the Duck River. In other words, cut him off and isolate approximately 30,000 men from Thomas, some 45 miles north in Nashville. Then, positioned between the two Union forces, Hood would defeat one, then turn and whip the other. But to do that, he had to reach Columbia first. No question, from the federal perspective, Hood's delay in Alabama had been a blessing. Thomas, the nearly six-foot, 200-pound, barrel-chested Virginian, took advantage of every extra hour. A solid officer, after he was ordered back to Nashville in September of 1864, he quickly got down to the business of organizing his command. And one part of that was the posting of a force under the 33-year-old New Yorker Schofield down at Pulaski, which was some 75 miles to the south of Tennessee's capital city. There, he had his own corps, the 23rd, as well as Major General David Sloan Stanley's 4th Corps. Stanley, a 36-year-old Ohioan, an officer of some ability, had under him two experienced division commanders, Major Generals Jacob Dolson Cox and Thomas John Wood. Cox was a former lawyer and politician from Ohio, and Wood, though a West Pointer and pugnacious fighter, was still under a cloud for his performance at Chickamauga. Interestingly, the least admired of all the federal officers at Pulaski was Schofield himself. Despite contrasting characteristics with John Bell Hood, 
The plump and ambitious major general in blue was, according to his peers, reputed to elevate his status by damning others. Stanley hated him. Though despised, Schofield knew his opponent. It was Schofield who warned Sherman during the Atlantic campaign that Hood will hit you like hell now before you know it. Schofield fully anticipated something violent at or near Pulaski. It was fortunate he was on the alert, for Stuart's Confederate Corps reached the village of Lawrenceburg, which was 20 miles west of Pulaski and halfway to Columbia. Made aware of that intel, Schofield immediately put his people on the Columbia Turnpike headed north. By first light on Tuesday, November the 22nd, Schofield had five divisions, 62 guns, and 800 wagons on the road. For Hood and Schofield, it was a race who would reach Columbia first. On the Union left, forest-mounted element harassed men in blue, but Brevet Major General James H. Wilson's Union cavalry managed to keep forest troopers away just enough to allow Jacob Cox's 5,000-man division to reach Columbia first on the 24th. Stanley's Fourth Corps then arrived. Spades were quickly utilized, and an arc of trenches facing south were dug. By the time Hood and his army arrived, Schofield, though entrenched, feared for his flanks. And with the Duck River in his immediate rear, Schofield, on the night of the 27th, withdrew north of the river, and in doing so, destroyed two bridges that Hood might have used for pursuit. With Schofield's departure, Hood's men occupied Columbia. As they did, Snow began to fall upon already frozen ground. Though temperatures were low, Hood's blood was up. Anxious to pursue, he wanted Forrest to move east upriver, ford the duck, and clear the way for Confederate infantry. Cheatham and Stewart's Confederates would follow. Their objective? A hamlet 12 miles north, Spring Hill. With Lee's corps pursuing and demonstrating before Schofield, Hood hoped Cheatham and Stewart would outdistance the Union force and cut them off. Hood's plan progressed nicely on Monday the 28th, but Wilson's blue alert cavalry gave notice that forest troopers were north of the Duck River. Schofield, who didn't like Wilson, ignored that warning, and a later one that came in at 1 a.m. on the 29th. The second message informed him that Confederate infantry was crossing the river and would reach Spring Hill by 10 the same morning. Yet, incredibly, it took a third communication from Wilson at dawn to finally stir Schofield. Reacting, he sent two of Stanley's divisions north up the turnpike. One was to be posted halfway to Spring Hill. Stirred but not fully taking to heart Wilson's reports, Schofield dispatched an infantry brigade up the duck to verify that indeed Confederates were crossing the river. But with Stephen D. Lee's corps keeping up a steady bombardment in his front, Schofield refused to move his main body. At that moment, John Bell Hood was confident within glitches. An energetic David Stanley posted one Union division halfway to Spring Hill, then placed another in all of the Federal Reserve artillery at a point within striking distance of the village. 
In the lead of that column, headed for Spring Hill, 34-year-old Colonel Emerson Opdyke, a Buckeye and tough disciplinarian who demanded much of his men, but was respected because they knew he looked after them. As they entered Spring Hill, a spooked Union trooper warned that forest cavalry were moving in from north and east of town. Responding, Updike took his men on the run, met Forrest's initial attack, and repulsed it. Quite honestly, Forrest was surprised there was any Union presence in Spring Hill. Meanwhile, Stanley placed his three Union brigades, some 5,000 men, and posted 34 guns on a rise south of town. Entrenched in a semicircle, these men, as did their officers, quickly understood they would be shouldered with the desperate task of holding open an escape route north to Franklin and Nashville. By 3 p.m., Cheatham's Confederate Corps had closed on the village. In the lead, Major General Patrick Claiborne's famous hard-hitting division. At that point in time, Cheatham's Confederates outnumbered Stanley's two to one, and sensing their numerical advantage, prepared to strike. Things then began to unravel. Inadequate reconnaissance meant Claiborne's attack veered, and by doing so, exposed its right flank, allowing murderous Union artillery fire which broke that southern attack. Meanwhile, two more Confederate divisions arrived, one under Major General William B. Bate and another under Major General John C. Brown, who, when he discovered that the Federal lines were not where he believed, refused to attack. Then a domino effect. Bate, who was to go in with Brown, did not go in as well. Their failure to attack infuriated their veterans, who had served long enough to recognize a tactical blunder when they saw one. On the other side, Major General David Stanley remembered that that Tuesday, November the 29th, 1864, was, as he recorded it, the biggest day's work I ever accomplished for the United States. The balance of Hood's Confederate force that day approached Spring Hill at a 45-degree angle to the turnpike and went into camp parallel to the road, but by not crossing it, inadvertently left Schofield and his force an escape route. Hood arrived on the scene at about 7 p.m. and made his headquarters at the Absalom Thompson house just southeast of town. At a meeting there that night, his officers expressed surprise when they learned their commanding officer was not upset about Brown and Bates' aborted attack earlier that afternoon. Then they were stunned when the usual heads-down, arm-swinging hood decided to wait until the next morning to attack. Benjamin Cheatham later said, I was never more astonished than when General Hood informed me that he had concluded to postpone the attack till daylight. Perhaps he said that to deflect blame, for no question, he was distracted that night by a lovely and charming Mrs. Jessie Peters, who seemed to have quite a thing for Confederate officers, officers with stars on their collars. Ask Confederate Major General Earl Van Dorn, who in May of 1863 was assassinated by her insanely jealous husband. Back to another sad state of affairs. Sometime during the night, Hood finally came to grip with the fact that the Columbia Pike, the Union escape route, was still open. 
He asked Alexander Stewart to post a Confederate brigade across it, but the Confederate lieutenant general deferred, explaining that his men were too tired and hungry. Now Hood turned and asked Forrest, who was willing, but did state that two of his divisions were out of ammunition and a third was running extremely low. With that explanation and the lateness of the hour, Hood, incredibly, let the matter drop. As he put it to Division Commander Bate, in the morning we will have a surrender without a fight. We can sleep quietly tonight. Across the way, there was one who got little, if any, sleep. John McAllister Schofield, who was wide awake with real concern. By mid-afternoon of Tuesday the 29th, he was terrifyingly aware of his predicament, the real potential for his men to be cut off. And so, about 7 p.m., he ordered his men to head north. By about the time Hood held his war council, Schofield had a portion of his men not only on the road, but past Confederates who were incredibly camped not far away along the very same turnpike. As Union Captain James A. Sexton of the 72nd Illinois wrote, We were in such close proximity to the Confederates that we could see their long line of campfires as they burned brightly could hear the rattle of their canteens, see the officers and men standing around the fires, while the rumbling of our wagon train on the pike and the beating of our own hearts were the only sounds we could hear on our side. To cover the movement, wooden bridges that spanned local streams were covered with blankets to muffle sound. The night of November the 29th, 30th, may well be one of the strangest and most daring escapes of the entire war. As two Federal Corps and a five-mile-long wagon train slipped past in the darkness, not one Confederate force of any size moved to block their escape northward. Hood turned in around 11. Twice he was roused by reports that Federals were moving up the Columbia Turnpike. He told the second messenger, a barefoot private, to tell Corps Commander Cheatham, who in turn passed word to recently arrived Major General Edward Allegheny Johnson, who first tongue-lashed the messenger, then stirred himself to get dressed and ride out to the pike. Incredibly, he found it empty. To this day, one has to ask, did he really arrive at the turnpike? Did he arrive at a time when a gap occurred between marching units? We do know this. By first light, Wednesday, November the 30th, some 30,000 men, 62 guns, and 800 wagons, a five-mile-long column, had slipped past Hood's encamped army and was eight miles up the road toward Franklin. Finally, fully aware of the blown opportunity to cut off and quite possibly destroy an entire enemy force, Hood was livid and called a meeting where, understandably, tempers were short. Officers, white-hot with anger, vented angry accusations, shouted angry threats, and equally angry denials. Apologies were demanded. Hood laid blame at the feet of Cheatham, who just as vehemently denied any charge. At no time during the verbal firefight did Hood ever blame himself. For him, had it been a case of sheer exhaustion, 
too much laudanum, which he consumed to dull or kill the almost constant pain he was in, whatever, he soon thereafter expanded his blame. Not only did his officers let him down, but he felt his men. They had lost their elan, their fighting spirit. He blamed former Army of Tennessee Commander Joseph E. Johnston, whose defensive-minded tactics had softened his army, and he knew just what would correct the situation. He would relentlessly pursue, and he would attack. When soldiers of the rank and file learned their enemy had escaped, morale plummeted. As one Confederate officer put it, there was not an officer or private present who could not but understand that a culpable and inexcusable blunder had been made. Hood immediately ordered for camps to be broken, and the chase up the Columbia Turnpike was on. Again, it was Claiborne's division of Cheatham's Corps that took the lead. That officer who had left his native Ireland to settle in Helena, Arkansas, was not only respected, but loved by his men. By merit alone, he should have been a corps commander, but Confederate politics blocked promotion. Many believe he was held back for suggesting something so daring that it was kept secret for a quarter of a century. Back on January the 2nd, 1864, in a meeting in Joseph Johnston's tent, he took the floor for 30 jaw-dropping, stunning minutes. He made it clear that he truly believed that slavery, as he put it, was the Confederacy's most vulnerable point, a continued embarrassment, and in some respects, an insidious weakness. And so the man who did not own slaves and who believed that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was cynical pronounced, give up the Negro slave rather than be a slave himself. Certain that slavery was incidental to the entire war, he believed that if the Confederacy acted, Lincoln's Republican Party would lose its moral incentive and argument. And by doing so, Confederate diplomacy would be immeasurably aided. He even went so far as to suggest that slaves not only be armed, but freed if they fought for the Confederacy. A stunned Johnston ordered that no word of the meeting or Claiborne's suggestion should be uttered. When word did finally leak to Richmond, its effect was a bombshell. That's why Claiborne, despite his incredible military record, would never be elevated to Corps command. Back to Schofield's force. Reaching Franklin, it was, for the moment, safe and the Union Major General was justifiably relieved. But he still felt uneasy. You see, the town was tucked in a tight bend of the Harpeth River, and Nashville and its massive defenses were 18 miles away to the north. Fearing that Hood would fall upon him before he could get his wagons across the river, Schofield made a decision. He would stop, make a stand, and fight. And so he ordered Jacob Cox to take two divisions of the 23rd Corps, Schofield's own, and facing south, dig in across the Nashville-Columbia Turnpike. On the right, he placed a division of Stanley's 4th Corps. The ground chosen was excellent for defense. For his headquarters, 
Cox chose a brick house owned by 67-year-old Fountain Branch Carter, which sat at the high point of a wide, almost treeless, undulating plain. Stretching two miles to the south, that open plain over which Hood's army would have to attack offered little, if any, cover. Meanwhile, Schofield anchored both his flanks on the Harpeth and, when informed that the river could be forded, placed 12 guns on the far side of the river. With those decisions, he relaxed to a degree. Still, two half-destroyed bridges were repaired, and with wagons crossing over to the north bank, Schofield relaxed a little more. But as expected, around 2 p.m., Hood arrived just south of town and began to position his army on the southern slope of an elevation called Winstead Hill. From there, he and Bedford Forrest studied the Union defensive line. Looking at the treeless plain that stretched before them, Forrest strongly counseled against a frontal attack. And despite flanks anchored on the river, Forrest believed them vulnerable. To test them, he requested one infantry division to join his cavalry, but Hood refused. Stung by the events of the night before, believing his men had lost their combative elan, he ordered what at the beginning of the campaign he promised he would not do, a frontal assault. Without waiting for Stephen D. Lee's corps or most of his artillery to arrive on the scene, Hood decided to throw Cheatham and Stewart's corps straight at the Federal works, straight up the turnpike, for two miles over open terrain. A frontal attack was just the thing to restore the nerve and fighting spirit of his jaded troops, he believed. The plan he settled from one who believed valor was synonymous with heavy casualties. The attack to be made by six infantry divisions, 18 brigades, 100 regiments, a total of some 20 to 22,000 men, some seven to 9,000 more, who marched across three quarters of a mile of open ground on the third day at Gettysburg. Seven of the 18 brigades would be the main thrust of the all-consuming concentrated attack. Three would advance on the right of the turnpike, and they would be under Claiborne. To the left, four would march forward under the command of John C. Brown. The rest of Cheatham's corps would be sent to the far left and coordinate their strike with forest troopers. On the far Confederate right, Stewart's corps. And what was to come, Hood and Schofield's armies numbered about the same. But again, one has to ask, what if Hood had waited for Lee's corps to come up? Rather than stage an assault with only two batteries of artillery support, what if Hood had waited for the rest of his artillery? Just before the inevitable order to advance, a fellow Arkansan saw Claiborne and noted that General Claiborne seemed to be more despondent than I ever saw him. Then the observer commented, Well, General, there will not be many of us that will get back to Arkansas. And Claiborne replied, Well, if we are to die, let us die like men. Awaiting them, astride the turnpike, some two miles away, Jacob Cox and two well-entrenched Union lines. 
both angled back in gradual steps. The second line a little elevated, and with it, artillery which was placed to fire over the first line. It was a strong position, but there were two flaws. One was a gap at the point where the turnpike ran directly through the Federal earthworks, and the second involved the men of Brigadier General George Day Wagner, who, serving as a rear guard on Winstead Hill, were posted out in front of the main Union line. When the Confederate host began to arrive, Wagner fell back to a point one-half mile in front of the main line, and it was there that his men were to remain until Hood advanced. Then he was to fall back through the gap in the main line and go into reserve near landmarks known as the Carter House and the Big Cotton Gin. Wagner, however, misunderstood his orders. He thought he was to hold his advanced position no matter what. Colonel Updike, whose men had responded so well at Spring Hill, begged to differ, and so marched his men northward to the intended spot in the order, leaving Wagner and two brigades dangerously exposed out in front. Finally, one half hour before sunset, on what had been an Indian summer day, those 20 to 22,000 men in butternut and gray, men of the Army of Tennessee, advanced. As the late afternoon sun burned off polished bayonets, rabbits bounded ahead of the Confederate line, and coveys of quail took to the sky. As if on parade, on they came till they reached a point about a mile away from their enemy. There they stopped and dressed ranks. In the final moments before the order was given for the final closing, Claiborne, marked out squares in the ground and incredibly began a game of checkers using leaves of different colors. Enlisted men, fully expecting to be killed in the coming charge, ate all of their rations. A Confederate band began to play and then the skirmish line went forward and as the Confederate wave finally surged toward Wagner's two advanced and exposed brigades, up from the throats of tens of thousands of men, the other worldly, spine-tingling rebel yell. Wagner's men, unnerved and fearing the worst, fired a volley. It created Confederate gaps, but they were quickly filled, and the avalanche of butternut and gray surged up and over Wagner's position. Men in blue broke Though some 700 were taken prisoner, many were cut down as they fled rearward. As Wagner survivors streamed back, the main Union line could not fire for fear of tearing into their own. Claiborne and Brown's men were right on their heels, and the shout went up, Go into the works with them! Though Wagner's men raced into their own lines, they were ensnared and trapped by federal obstacles. Abati. Entangled with them, they were shot, bayoneted, or clubbed. For those who did make it through the fieldworks, the main Union line parted, but that allowed Claiborne and Brown's Confederates to pour into the resulting gaps. The breakthrough near the Carter House and the Cotton Gin. Responding to the dire emergency, Updike and his brigade counterattacked. Picking up reinforcements as they went, opposing lines became entangled. The fighting, one of the most savage hand-to-hand -hand struggles of the entire war. 
bayonets, and trenching tools. Muskets were all used as clubs. Opdyke emptied his revolver and then broke it when he clubbed a Confederate officer over the head. Firing was point blank, but the weight of the Union counter surge was beginning to tell. The Confederate attack stalled, fell back, and men halted just on the other side of the Federal entrenchments. Over on the Confederate far right, Stewart's advance had gone well at first, but Union infantry and artillery from across the river broke his attack. A mounted Brigadier General John Adams tried to rally his men by galloping forward. In doing so, he penetrated the Federal line and reached for the flag of the 65th Illinois. The regiment's color sergeant shot him down. Mortally wounded, Adams lived only a few minutes, dead at 39. The Confederate attack on this front, like the center, was stalled, and the situation was the same on the Confederate left. And by then, darkness helped undo the attacks of William Bates' division of Floridians and Georgians. All Confederate attacks stalled. Hood's men clung to the outer ring of Federal earthworks. There they were protected but could not go forward. And if they tried to fall back, certain death awaited them on the treeless plain. So all along the line, desperate men in blue and butternut were separated only by mere feet. Men handed loaded muskets forward. Arms raised them over the tops of earthworks and triggers were pulled to fire point blank on the other side. Any head that appeared was shot or clubbed. And all over that bloodied field of battle, Union superiority and artillery slaughtered Confederate enlisted men and officers alike. Adams was dead. Confederate Brigadier General Hiram Bronson Granbury was down, dead at 33. South Carolinian Brigadier General States Wright's Gist was mortally wounded, dead at 33. So was Brigadier General Otto French Strahl dead also at 33. 26-year-old Confederate Brigadier General John Carpenter Carter was mortally wounded. So, too, was another Carter, young Captain Todd Carter, mortally wounded on the very ground he played upon as a boy. The young Todd shot down within sight of his home, his first glimpse of it in more than two years. That evening, he would be found by his father, he and the young Carter's sisters bore his body back to the family sitting room where he died the next day. Amidst the fighting and slaughter, a chilling rumor spread down and along the Confederate line. Patrick Claiborne was down. The rumor was true. His horse had been shot from under him, and as he mounted a second horse, a cannon blast killed it. Claiborne drew his sword and on foot ran forward. As another Confederate officer described, he then disappeared in the smoke of battle and that was the last time I ever saw him alive. Later, a private found his lifeless body, his military cap partly over his eyes. The Mississippi private went on to write that Claiborne lay flat upon his back as if asleep. He had been shot through the heart, dead at 36. The next day, he was temporarily buried in the churchyard back at Ashwood, the spot he found so peaceful only the day before. In the rolling disaster, Hood was two miles in the rear and completely out of touch. 
smoke veiled his view, and now darkness. Though he had promised his men he would not, on this day he did indeed advance his army in a frontal assault, and it had been cut to pieces. Jacob Cox's men not only won the fight, but dealt horrible punishment. Believing a more decisive victory was at hand, Cox sent a courier to Schofield, who had spent the day on the north bank of the Harpeth, and quite honestly was just as removed as Hood. The courier conveyed that Cox wanted to pursue, but Schofield had had enough. He wanted and ordered all to continue their withdrawal north to Nashville. At 11 p.m. on the night of November the 30th, 1864, Schofield abandoned the battlefield and his wounded at Franklin. With the enemy gone that night and the next day, Southern survivors searched the blasted landscape for friends and comrades. All of them agreed. Franklin was a battlefield of unmatched horror. An Alabaman simply wrote, I have seen many battlefields, but none equal to this. Union losses were 189 killed, 1033 wounded, 1104 missing or presumed captured, 8% casualties of the total Union force. Confederate losses were estimated. No precise count was made, either because Hood's army was close to disintegration or nobody wanted to know the horrible truth. The estimated count, 6,252 casualties, 23% of Hood's army, and of those casualties, 1,750 killed outright. The losses included 65 division, brigade, and regimental officers, and 14 Confederate generals. One captured, seven wounded, six killed. Nothing matched this loss of generals for one side in one battle for the entire war. Four of the dead, Claiborne, Adams, Strahl, and Granbury, were laid out on the back porch of the Carnton House. For John Bell Hood and the Army of Tennessee, Franklin was an unmitigated disaster, a horrible nightmare that could not be eased or erased. Indeed, bitterness coursed its way through the blasted army. At Spring Hill, Hood had allowed the enemy to escape, and the next day he committed his men to slaughter. With the Union withdrawal to Nashville and Franklin occupied by Confederate survivors, Hood rode into Franklin the next day, Thursday, December the 1st, and seemed to show little regret or cognizance of lessons learned when he incredibly issued orders for his remnants to continue their pursuit of Schofield's force. About the time Hood rode into Franklin the morning of December the 1st, the Union general reached the safety of Nashville, the rest of his federal force around noon. That evening, Hood and what was left of his battered army reached the southern outskirts of the Tennessee capital where, in two weeks, there would be another bloody encounter, the Battle of Nashville, one that would finish what had been inflicted at Franklin. Indeed, 
As Pulitzer Prize-winning historian James M. McPherson once wrote, having proved at Franklin, even to Hood's satisfaction, that his army could assault breastworks, the Army of Tennessee had shattered itself beyond the possibility of ever doing so again. Indeed, after the mortal wounding of Hood's army at Franklin, the Battle of Nashville, for all practical purposes, ended the military effectiveness and existence of what was once the proud Confederate Army of Tennessee. Today, it seems that time does not want to recall or remember the horror of the Battle of Franklin. True, the Carter House and the Carnton Plantation still stand and can be visited, but much of the battlefield has long been lost to commercial development. To illustrate, the spot where Patrick Claiborne fell was until late 2005 the site for a pizza hut. Although purchased by a preservation group and torn down, the American Battlefield Trust ranks the Franklin Battlefield as one of the ten most endangered Civil War sites. When we next gather, part one of the campaign which drove a knife through the heart of the South and essentially knocked Georgia out of the war, Sherman's March to the Sea. I hope you'll be with us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>